Assalamu alaikum. In today's episode, my guest and I talk extensively about the situation in Kashmir. We understand that this is a complicated and sensitive topic. I want to give a disclaimer that my guest is from Pakistan and we both acknowledge his bias regarding this topic. You should also know that while we are both history fans, we are not true historians. Please consider everything we say in that light. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and I have a special guest with me. Uh, you've heard his name on several past episodes. He has been really my secret weapon past couple of months, and he has really helped me with the research, especially for the series on Pakistan. So I would like to introduce my friend, my brother, and my, and I, I hate to say my researcher, but pretty much my researcher for the Islamic History Podcast, Brother Zulfikar Sarosh. Brother Zulfikar Sarosh, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam. Okay, so what I wanted to do, I wanted to talk with you about, generally about Pakistan, though this is an open conversation. There's really, um, we can talk about anything that comes to mind, but I really wanted to cover a lot of the um, things that we didn't really get to cover during our series on Pakistan. So at the time of this recording, this is the day before Eid al-Adha, so that is uh, Sunday, I'm sorry, Saturday, August 10th. So just so the uh, audience knows when this is being recorded and we know that just recently India has announced that they're going to move the special status from Kashmir and we're going to dive into that in just a moment but before we even get into the news of the day can you brother Stuart, can you kind of explain how does why is Kashmir such a flashpoint historically between Pakistan and India? And I want to let all, of course, the audience probably knows this. You are originally from Pakistan. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah, okay. I'm, uh, I'm from Pakistan. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. What is, the, what is the thing with Kashmir? Why is it such a, um, a cause of strife between these two nations? So, uh, yeah, Kashmir is actually, um, uh, it's, a, it's a byproduct of, the partition of India by the British. So what happened was that uh, when when the British decided to uh, partition India into India and Pakistan, uh, the one of the guiding principles was that the Muslim majority areas would form the state of Pakistan, and the rest of the country would become uh, what is now India. So, uh, uh, but on on that principle. Uh, the there was there was easy uh, for um, some of the provinces that basically it boiled down to five major provinces in India, which was Northwest Frontier Province, which is now known as Khalistan. It was Balochistan, Sindh, uh, Punjab, and Bengal. Now, out of these five provinces, which are Muslim majority provinces in British India, um, Punjab and Bengal uh, had a pretty significant non-Muslim population. Um, I believe it was like uh, 40-some percent. And so what the British decided was that because of the significant non-Muslim population, uh, we would divide these two provinces as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bengal was to be divided between the east and the west Bengal uh, with the 
uh, East Bengal being a Muslim majority province going to Pakistan, um, which became East Pakistan is now known as Bangladesh, and the West Bengal uh, became the state of Bengal in uh, India. As for Punjab, uh, they also divided into East and West Punjab, the uh, West Punjab uh, becoming the province of Punjab in Pakistan and the East Punjab uh, going to India. It's now uh, three or four different states within India. The problem here was that Kashmir uh, was uh, connected to Punjab and Kashmir was a, um, what, what they call a princely state. Now, the, on the princely state, the rule was not that clear-cut. Um, the, uh, it was supposed to be at the discretion of the prince, keeping in view their geographic location and the size of the population. So essentially, most of the states uh, that fell, most of the princely states that fell into Pakistan today had Muslim majority, uh, but uh, their um, uh, but their rulers were also mostly Muslim. Uh, Kashmir was a special case. It was about eighty percent or more Muslim, mm-hmm. but the ruler was a Hindu. Okay. Right. At the time of partition, he was. At the time of partition, it seemed like he was kind of. Um, he wasn't sure exactly which way he was going to go. Whether he was going to join India or Pakistan. Right, and the thing was uh, because his uh, uh, his uh, geographic location. Uh, if the partition was done right, and I'm going to talk, uh, Kashmir would have been within the uh, borders of Pakistan uh, or would have been disconnected from India by land, by Pakistani land. So geographically, Kashmir was connected to Pakistan. Historically, culturally, religiously, most of the Kashmiris were Muslims. So it made sense for Kashmir to be a part of Pakistan. Um, What happened was when the British started dividing uh, Punjab, they realized that if they did a simple um, district-wide, so so each province was divided into districts, Mm -hmm. and the British said, you know what, let's divide it based on the districts. So they said, uh, the Muslim-majority districts go to Pakistan, and the Hindu-majority districts go to India. When they divided that line, there was a province um, uh, which was, um, uh, sorry, not the province, uh, a district, uh, the district of Firozpur uh, was going to fall into Pakistan um, because it was a Muslim-majority uh, district. Now, this district is important because the only road connecting India to Kashmir went through this district. Remember, Kashmir is primarily mountainous area, and uh, there was a big uh, chunk of Pakistan already connect, uh, connected to uh, Kashmir, but the only link to India through Kashmir would have been through this one district. Um, the British then decided, you know, we will apply the same principle on this district itself. So each district in British India was subdivided into what they call the seals. And uh, this 
district they decided will give the Muslim majority tehsils to Pakistan and the Hindu majority tehsils to India. Uh, so kind of breaking away from the tradition mm-hmm. or the, the, the decision that they made. And the, the Muslim majority, um, when they started doing that, they realized, well, there is one tehsil, uh, the Patan court, which was going to go into Pakistan because the road to Kashmir was still going through it. They decided, you know what, we'll further divide this one tehsil so that the road to Kashmir goes through India. Eventually, the idea was that both India and Pakistan had some sort of a connection. India being just that one tenuous connection through the road mm-hmm. in Pakistan is has a huge border uh, between Pakistani Punjab and uh, Kashmir. And that's one of the things um, during the research that you provide, one of the things I noticed um, or one thing I was concerned about, uh, somewhat like how Africa and the Middle East, when the European powers kind of carved them up, they carved them up not really thinking about different ethnic groups and and historical rivalries and things like that. Did that play a part in the... um, in the partition as well, even though I understand the British were trying and all parties involved were trying to separate Hindus and Muslims, I guess, into these two different groups. But was there any instance, uh, it seems like it may have been one in Kashmir, where people drew lines in the dirt that kind of grouped or separated people, whether either way, group, grouped or separated people that naturally had uh, different boundaries? Uh, not so much uh, um, in in India because remember uh, with with Africa they actually carved up new countries in Africa, mm-hmm. but in India since this was already um, sort of an empire with the, uh, with some uh, independent states when the British took over they pretty much kept that character uh, they did. Uh, keep some of the provinces of the Mughal Empire, which they had taken India from. But remember, Mughal Empire itself was fractured by that time. Mm. Uh, so most of the states that they took over, um, the uh, the breakaway states, for example, Punjab was being ruled by Sikhs. Uh, they pretty much took all of uh, Punjab and uh, broke it up into Punjab and what is now called NWFP. Um, Sindh, the state of Sindh, they kept as is, and they just created the province of Sindh out of it. Um, And and then also uh, in the south, they pretty much followed the same rule. Uh, The province of Bengal, the Mughal province of Bengal, uh, they played around with some of the boundaries, uh, but not not significantly, uh, because all of India, remember, was still under British control. Right. And some of the princely states were uh, either the breakaway states from the Mughal Empire or they were what they called uh, the large Zamidaras, which is, is kind of like an autonomous state within the Mughal Empire or some other uh, breakaway empire, like the Sikh Empire had uh, Zamidaras. So they converted those into what they called princely states. And the princely states were as small as uh, maybe a few square, kilo- square kilometers to the large states like uh, Kashmir and uh, Hyderabad. Okay, now you, you brought up a couple of different groups which um, or regions which also 
can sometimes be um, ethnic groups. I know Bengalis or Bengali is one ethnic group over to the east. Um, is Punjab an ethnic group or just a region? Is there, I've, no, somebody, Punjab is an it is an ethnic group. It's, okay, so Punjabi is an ethnic group. Okay, and also Pashtun. I remember this from the War on Terror days of the early 2000s. There's a lot of talk about Pashtuns in Afghanistan, and I presume some of that also leaked over into Afghanistan. Uh, what are the, um, I'm sorry, in Afghanistan leaked over into Pakistan. What are some of the major ethnic groups in Pakistan? I, I think a lot of people uh, don't understand that there are several ethnic groups in Pakistan. It's not one homogeneous nation, even though um, even though it may seem like that to a lot of Americans or people who are from there. But what are some of the um, ethnic groups in Pakistan? Um, in Pakistan, the largest ethnic group today is uh, Punjabis, uh, which form around 60% uh, of the country. Then there's the Sindhis, um, which speak a language called Sindhi. Punjabi speak uh, primarily Punjabi. Uh, the Pashtuns or the Pakhtuns or the Pathans, they're the same name for the, uh, for the ethnic group, uh, which you refer to as Pashtuns. Uh, they, that's another ethnic group. They typically live along the uh, Afghan border. Uh, and then there's the Baluchis, which live in Baluchistan. Uh, primarily along the uh, Iranian border and uh, bordering uh, the uh, Arabian Sea. And uh, those are the four uh, major groups. Then there's also the Muhajirs, which are basically the uh, immigrants uh, from uh, India after the partition. A lot of Muslims migrated to Pakistan, Mm -hmm. and uh, their children are uh, today known as the Muhajirs uh, for the obvious reasons. Okay, was your family um, a Muhajir family? Do they also? Migrate? Yes. Yes. Okay. They migrated. Okay. Where? What part of uh, India were they originally from? Uh, they're from uh, a region called United Provinces or UP. Okay. Uh, now it's called Uttar Pradesh or the Northern uh, Province in India. Okay. Is that um, where um, the, the Mahajan? So is that Sorry, is, UP? Is that where um, um, Deoband University and Aligarh University? Is that where those are? Those two schools are. Right. Okay. Correct. That's where the schools are. Okay. Um, so, but most of the ethnic groups are uh, based on languages, uh, like the Punjabis speak. You speak the Punjabi language. Uh, there's Sindhis speaking Sindhi language. Most of the Muhajirs speak Urdu. Uh, there are some other smaller groups uh, in Pakistan as well, um, like uh, towards the north is the Chitralis. Um, the Kashmiris themselves are uh, considered distinct from the Punjabis, although the uh, the Kashmiris mostly in Pakistan have um, adopted a lot of uh, Punjabi culture. Mm. Uh, then there's some other smaller groups as well in, in Pakistan. Um, okay. But these are the five, five uh, major groups. All right, going back to the Mohajirs, how um, what is is the Mohajir is the the I guess the label that were given to them after they moved from India to Pakistan. So for you, for instance, uh, what was your original ethnic group or what are some of the, it seems that the Mahaja could um, basically be many different ethnic groups just have the label of Mahaja, unless I'm misunderstanding it. Yeah, no, that is correct. Uh, most of the Mahajas, um are uh, from, but currently the people who call themselves Mahajir. Uh, they speak Urdu, but uh, technically, um, a lot of 
people move from East Punjab into West Punjab. Uh, because there's the same ethnic group, uh, people still consider them as Punjabis, but they're technically they're Mahajir, and a lot of them consider themselves Mahajir too. Uh, there were people from Rajasthan, UP, um, pretty much all of India, Bihar, pretty much all of India. Um, but uh, a lot of those people uh, did speak Urdu, but there were uh, people who speak Gujarati or some other language. Okay. And Urdu is considered the uh, national language of Pakistan. Uh, I don't know if it's a na- like officially their official language or is Urdu just the most common language? In Pakistan, it's actually the official one of the official languages, along with with English. Uh, English is the language of the uh, courts and the all the official communication. But Urdu is also uh, considered uh, the official language. Uh, it is also the lingua franca nowadays in Pakistan. Okay. Um, since the independence, because because of its status, a lot of people uh, now have to learn Urdu. Um, I, I would believe a big majority of Pakistani people depend. Doesn't matter which group they belong to, they do speak uh, Urdu. Okay, so songs, popular music, movies, and stuff like that. If they're not in English, they'll generally be in Urdu. Yes, okay. um, but but there's a large. Uh, number of uh, Punjabi uh, movies and Pashta movies out there as well, okay. and songs. Okay, so I will take it that um, most um, Pakistanis speak at least Urdu and English and probably a third language as well? Uh, I would say most Pakistanis speak Urdu and there uh, some of the, some other language like Punjabi or Pashto or whatever. Uh, the, most of the or what I would call educated class, they also speak English as well. Okay. Are there any, um, uh, is there any sort of ethnic strife? I really don't hear about that much. We hear, you know, there's always, you know, some bad news coming out of Pakistan, but usually it's along lines of religion and not really ethnic strife. Is there any underlying ethnic conflict that doesn't really make it into the news in Pakistan? Or is it um, generally, does everyone pretty much get along? Uh, there have been significant ethnic uh, tensions, although um, of, of recent times, uh, maybe in the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, they have uh, simmered down, uh, but the tensions are there. Currently, the, the biggest flashpoint uh, from along ethnic lines in Pakistan is in Balochistan, uh, where there is a, a movement to uh, create an independent state of Balochistan, um, which uh, the government of Pakistan actually believes that it is uh, being funded uh, from India and through their porous border into uh, Afghanistan. Okay. Okay. Well, going back to the partition, um, in some of uh, the notes you sent me during our research, well, most of your research, but during the research, you mentioned how the um, the partition was poorly handled. Uh, do you believe, I guess, the... Um, the drawing of the the constant divisions and then divisions within divisions that the British tried to do is that part of the reason it was poorly handled, or did you mean something else? Uh, I, yeah, that is part of the reason. Uh, but the main thing was uh, the British were very hasty with the partition. So the original plan 
was to partition India in June of 1948. Mm -hmm. Um, But in January, uh, I believe January or February of 1947, they switched the uh, governor general um, and the new governor general, uh, Mountbatten, Lord Mountbatten. He uh, wanted to speed up the process uh, for whatever reasons. um, And he pulled in the date from June of 1947 to August of, uh, sorry, June of 1948 to August of 1947, so almost by an year. And he announced that somewhere in June. So he only gave a couple of months for people to prepare for a partition, which they thought was going to take next year. And you can see the logistics of dividing an entire country into two countries, uh, was to be completed within a period of two months. In two months, you cannot even do that analysis of what is actually required to be done. And this guy uh, just announced and said uh, somewhere in June, he announced that uh, on uh, August 15th, the two countries are going to come into existence and the British will leave India. So that is pretty much uh, not even time for a modern day um, major project like a road (laughs) or something. And he's dividing a country. That created a lot of problems. Okay. Is that partially what sparked the the riots that um, took place in 1946 and 1947? Or were they already happening even before um, this announcement? Uh, The riots actually were happening even before this announcement. Um, um, uh, Maybe one of the the, uh, leading reasons for him to pull in the date was to just uh, get out of India and leave it uh, because of all these riots. And he didn't want to have that under his administration. So said, well, let these uh, uh, brown people handle it themselves. Um, that might have been uh, one of the uh, primary reasons. But yeah, the riots had, had actually started uh, early in, I believe, 1946 or 47. I, I Okay, well, they don't have the debates. That's fine. I have the benefit of having your notes in front of me. But yeah, you said in August 1946, uh, when the first riots uh, took place in Calcutta uh, between um, Muslim League workers and um, Indian National Congress workers, and then, then it just spiraled out of control. It wound up with over 4,000 people being killed, and they just kept going from there. Was your family involved in um, either as victims or perpetrators of any of this violence uh, during this partition? Uh, well, not, not really. Um, but when my family settled in Pakistan, I did get a chance to, uh, talk to the, the area that was given to my father, some agricultural land. And, um, my, uh, my father's manager, land manager, he actually, one time he mentioned that, uh, he and his brothers had attacked a convoy of, uh, Six uh, leaving for and forced them actually to leave for India, uh, and uh, they did some killing. Uh, unfortunately, uh, on the other hand, my mother, when she was migrating from uh, the UP, uh, she was uh, riding on a train, and her train uh, was attacked by Sikhs uh, near uh, the city of Amritsar, and they had left. Uh, Amritsar is the last major city between Pakistan and India border. So they had uh, left Amritsar and they were moving towards the Pakistani border. So that's when they were attacked. 
fortunately, uh, her train was uh, what they call the GHQ special. Uh, it was carrying soldiers and military equipment to Pakistan. Uh, the six were, uh, un- unfortunately, unfortunately, did not realize that. Uh, so there were soldiers with guns and everything on her train, and they uh, they fired back uh, and, and uh, drove those guys away. Okay, so your mother was basically was she fleeing UP or was she was it just part of a normal her move from uh, India to Pakistan or was she actually fleeing because like fearing for her life? I know she was probably a little girl at this time, right? When this was happening. Yeah, my 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 grandfather would be the person, right? Uh, what happened was that when they announced partition, uh, the uh, government officials who were uh, working for the central government, like the the federal government here, uh, they had an option to choose between India and Pakistan. Uh, my grandfather uh, used to work for the uh, the state of UP, uh, so he did not have that option. But uh, my uh, my mother's uh, elder brother was probably in his early 20s or late teens at that time. He actually was working for uh, the uh, army general headquarters uh, as, as a civilian employee. And uh, so he had an option because he was, because military is considered part of the central government. So he had the option. So my grandfather uh, told his son to uh, choose Pakistan so that they could all uh, move to Pakistan. So, uh, and my grandfather resigned from his post and my uh, uncle, he picked uh, Pakistan uh, and uh, they were moved by the uh, general head, army general headquarters. Uh, so they they were provided the train and everything and free transit to Pakistan. Okay, and somehow in this tra- in this um, transition from India to Pakistan, the um, local Sikh gangs or militias they found out that a bunch of Muslims were on this train and they decided to attack it. Is that kind of what happened? Uh, at that time, pretty much any train going uh, westwards or any convoys, because there were train, there were there were lots of trains, but um, most of the people uh, just moved on feet, on their foot uh, or on their animals. Um, so they formed large convoys and just started walking to Pakistan. And same thing was happening on the other side of the border. People moving uh, eastward were generally going. Uh, to India. So it was easy for the gangs on both sides of the border to figure out uh, which of these guys are moving to in- India and which are moving to Pakistan. Okay. So your mother, as a little girl, uh, I, I take it um, your family's government connections, would that part of them help them get um, uh, train transport, which presumably was fa- definitely was faster and presumably was safer also. But uh, in their transition or the um, travel from India to Pakistan, at some point, uh, Sikh militia finds out about or they know that they're there, they see they're going westward, easy to figure out that they're heading to Pakistan. And so they attack them. It seems mind boggling <laughs> if they want to cleanse India of Muslims or cleanse, or cleanse um, UP of Muslims, it seems mind boggling they would actually attack them. But I know in these states where um, human rationality can sometimes leave leave our minds, but 
it seems mind-boggling they would attack them when they're doing exactly what they wanted them to do, leave India. So, um, I, I, okay, so there, so your mother and her family is on this train going from India to Pakistan. The Sikh militia attacks them. Do you know, I, I don't know you weren't born yet, obviously, but do you know the Sikh militia, would they attack with guns or with hand tools or was it whatever they could pick up? Or how was the, um, what, do you, what do you know about the, uh, mil- the Sikhs that were attacking them? So they actually uh, used an IED. Um, they placed an IED okay. explosive, yeah, on on the tracks. Uh, so as the train was passing, um, the the, uh, the engine of the train exploded. Uh, and then, but the way they had uh, built the train was that was the engine, followed by uh, the cargo um, trains or, or the cargo cars. Then it was the passengers' cars. Uh, so when when that IED exploded, the engine was destroyed, and uh, the whole train kind of started turning, uh, tilting uh, to to fall down. And luckily, the chain links between you know the the chain links that they have between the cars, the chain links between uh, some of the uh, cargo cars and or maybe the cargo and the passenger cars, but some of the chain links broke. And all the or or most of the cargo cars uh, were were toppled, but the rest of the train straightened itself. So now you have a train with just the cars standing on the road on on the track, and then you have a bunch of destroyed uh, cargo cars, and then it, and a destroyed engine and a destroyed track, of course. Um, and when that happened, there were six who were uh, hiding in the bushes nearby. Uh, they started shooting. Uh, at the train. And when they started shooting, the soldiers that were on the train, they basically took their guns and started shooting back. Uh, And, and they drove the, uh, the Sikhs away. And then later on, um, because they had to uh, get an engine, some of the soldiers went back to Amritsar uh, and they forced the, uh, the, the station master to give them an engine to get to Pakistan. And at the same time, uh, the British had uh, set up these special forces. Uh, these are called the Gurkha regiments. Uh, they're primarily from Nepal, and they're considered to be really good soldiers. So they came back with the uh, Gurkha platoon, which had machine gun and everything, and, and they basically uh, fired on, on the whatever remaining six were there and drove them out. And then they fixed the track, uh, connected the engine and uh, were able to ride back into Pakistan. Okay, yeah, that must have been terrifying. I can imagine uh, suddenly yeah, explosion. Was eight years yeah. old at that time. I'm sorry, say that again, I missed it. Uh, my mom was only eight years old at that time, so you can imagine the yeah. trauma that an eight-year-old might have gone through. She still remembers that, those are the details. Wow. Was, um... During that period of time, what were the leaders of uh, that of the Muslim League and the Indian National Congress? Mostly, I guess, Muhammad Ali Jinnah on the uh, Pakistani side, and I can never really pronounce his first name. Last name is Nehru. Uh, Nehru. I'm Jawaharlal Nehru. I can't really get his name. What were they uh, trying to do, um, or the politicians on both sides, and maybe even the British? What were they trying to do regarding the uh, riots as far as trying to um, stem the violence? Did they do anything to try to fix things or not have some oh, violence going on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, actually they did. Um, they did try their best, and especially starting in uh, 46, uh, 
both Nehru and Gandhi, uh, they they visited the camps, uh, the the, the right stricken areas when when they started off in uh, in Bengal, and then of course uh, from Pakistan side, the uh, Akhtari Khan, uh, and but they actually formed a. Uh, an alliance where Nehru, Ali Khan, and Nehru they went together and visited uh, a lot of these uh, riot-stricken areas, uh, talked to people, tried to calm them down. Uh, so they were trying their best, and then of course there were uh, volunteers on both sides which were helping the refugees. Um, as for the British, um, they they just didn't have enough people. Um, or enough dedicated people, I guess, or, or uh, neutral people to control the right. Uh, they, they did try uh, whatever they could to stop the rights. Uh, and uh, if if you read uh, Muhammad Assad's book, uh, he mentions that uh, when the British troops showed up, all the rioters would just uh, disappear into thin air because nobody wanted to mess with the British. But there were just not enough British soldiers to go around. Uh, and as for the Muslim and Hindu soldiers, first of all, uh, their neutralities would have been questioned. But then again, they were also trying to help their people cross the border as much as they could. Okay, we have to also keep in mind that this is uh, just a few years after the end of World War II. So Britain is still reeling from that and having to... Uh, um, manage an entire global empire after probably the most devastating war in human history. Uh, it's understandable the British may not have had, had um, uh, the ability to really put the manpower down. Uh, so I can, I can kind of understand that uh, in that regard. Um, going back to Muhammad Ali Jinnah, he's definitely, as we, as we mentioned in the show, he's definitely seen as the father of Pakistan and we've discussed in our episode on the three A's of Pakistan, the uh, the many different leaders of Pakistan. Um, many of them came through simply through um, military means, unfortunately, by overthrowing the government or some other ways like that. But besides Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who are some of the more influential in a positive respect? But maybe even, maybe not necessarily positive because um, no leader is perfect but in your opinion who are some of the more influential or important Pakistani leaders um, pretty much every leader left some of their marks uh, if I was to uh, look at the leadership I guess Ayub Khan uh, although he was a military uh, uh, dictator he uh, he tried to industrialize Pakistan um, to an extent where, you know, it, for a brief moment, it was considered as a role model for the rest of the uh, struggling third world countries. Uh, but unfortunately, he also sparked some ethnic tensions between Bengalis and the West Pakistanis, um, which resulted in uh, the partition. Um, the other person of importance, Zulfiqali Bhutto, um, is considered to be the the uh, first uh, quote unquote elected uh, uh, leader of Pakistan um, after the Ayub Khan. Uh, he um, he basically uh, left some legacies where he um, wanted to form like a alliance of the Muslim countries, the OIC. So he tried to help build the OIC into a stronger community. Um, by holding hosting the uh, conference, uh, the 
the Islamic Summit Conference uh, in 1974. He also uh, started Pakistan's uh, nuclear program, uh, uh, which many Pakistanis believe is uh, right now our uh, guarantee for no, for a non-war between India and Pakistan because it's because of the mutually assured, assured destruction. Um, but he basically turned into a civilian dictator, so that also caused a lot of uh, grief for Pakistanis. Okay. So I, every leader I'm going to think of is going to have some positive and some negative aspects. Um, but yeah, these two uh, do stand out. Ziaul Haq uh, kind of led the Islamization effort uh, in Pakistan pretty much. Um, that's his legacy, um, but it's people can argue for and against it because this you can argue that this actually led to uh, what is happening in Pakistan today with all this religious fanaticism that's going on. It was fueled primarily by his Islamization effort and his uh, misadventures into Afghanistan, uh, and. Uh, and some people would say, well, he he was going to try to build Islamic society, but uh, of course you can't force people uh, by uh, in, into building Islamic society. That actually comes from the heart. Um, the rest of the leaders really haven't done much for the country. Um, okay. you know, we were going to... I did, like, I did intend to go uh, deeper into uh, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto's history, but it just didn't come up and um, we just weren't really able to do it. But you mentioned he was a civilian dictator and most of the people who've been listening should know that uh, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto was the father of Benazir Bhutto, who was the first uh, uh, female uh, prime minister of Pakistan, I think probably the first female prime minister or civilian leader in the Muslim world. Um, so... Uh, he he does have a legacy, and I think also his family is now moving into, um, moving into uh, his his grandsons. I believe are also moving into political leadership. But why do you say he was a? Um, and so people who aren't familiar with the history of Pakistan, I got to try to frame it. Um, he was mostly he came into leadership and he came into um, power after the Civil War of 1971. So most of his reign was during the 70s. Is that correct? Correct, yeah, from okay. 1971 to 1977. Okay, why do you say he was a civilian dictator, though? Um, because uh, he uh, imposed um, a direct central rule on um, the provinces of uh, Balochistan and NWFP because they, he was not able to form his government there. Um he also uh, started uh, one of the many uh, op military operations in Balochistan. You don't expect a civilian ruler to be attacking his own people um, that way. Um, plus, he, he made a lot of uh, unilateral decisions uh, outside of uh, the uh, parliament. Um, and, and and the thing that led to his eventual demise was the murder of uh, one of his political opponents, which he was accused of um, ordering um, and actually found guilty, although most of the people believe that it was just a political show trial. Um, so in that sense, I would call him a military dictator, uh, civilian dictator, sorry. Uh, and, and initially for the first 
few months until, uh, I guess, maybe a year uh, after he came to power, uh, until uh, the constitution of Pakistan uh, came into force in August of 1973, he was technically the martial law administrator. So he was actually a real civil civil dictator, uh, even in uh, even by law from 1971 till uh, 1973. Okay, now this uh, period of time between Bhutto and Zia-ul-Haq, it is, um, there's some real Game of Thrones stuff going on between these two leaders. So uh, as I was reading their their um, their histories and how they went from one to the other, is really, we can, I don't, I don't want to make light of it because people lost their lives, but it is really fascinating how these two leaders and the, all the conspiracy and cloak and dagger behind the scenes between these two leaders. Uh, first, Zulfiq Ali Bhutto, he chose Ziaul Haq as his, I don't know the exact term, but he was, Ziaul Haq was Bhutto's um, basically general, com, general in command of the entire military. Is that correct? Commander in chief of the army. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then it was Ziaul Haq. And on top of all that, before I even get into Ziaul Haq, Bhutto chose him because he was a low-ranking general and put him in, in charge. Is that also basically the way he he thought he would be someone that Bhutto could push around or uh, could control, basically? Yeah, so so in, in army, they have this concept of seniority. So they have ranking. Uh, this guy is number one, number two. So Ziaulhaq, I think, was number six or seven in the line for being the uh, army chief. And Bhutto basically realized that the top five or six are uh, way too powerful for him to handle. And he saw Ziaul Haq as uh, uh, someone who was, uh, I wouldn't say harmless, but less harmful. He was considered more of a very religious type, keeping to himself type of a person, more professional, I guess. Um, so Ziala, uh, sorry, Bhutto uh, promoted him to the chief and uh, basically bypassing six or seven generals ahead of him. Yeah, and then, so he does that. But then later on, I guess 1976 or so, Ziaul Haq leads a coup that overthrows Bhutto and then has him arrested. Is that what happened basically? Or did or was Bhutto arrested separately from the, from the coup? Uh, no, no. So that, uh, what happened was... Uh, Bhutto had to, of course, uh, you have to have elections every five years. So uh, Pakistan uh, also had its elections. Uh, they were, um, you know, not the cleanest election. There were uh, a lot of reports of, uh, you know, ballot stuffing and things like that. Um, some underhand dealings uh, to to put the Bhutto's People's Party in power. And so the opposition parties, generally they were just, uh, in uh, most of the countries, they would just uh, scream about it and then go their way. You can see here, in, even in the U.S., when uh, Bush became president, there were a lot of uh, yeah. complaints against him, but they kind of just said, okay, well, he's now the president. Uh, but in Pakistan, what happened was these opposition parties, they started street protests. And the street protests turned pretty ugly. And uh, the opposition parties then contacted uh, Ziaul Haq directly. Because in Pakistan, there is there has been a history uh, from almost the very early days of military interventions. Uh, so they contacted Ziaul Haq. Um, 
who basically decided to uh, to topple the government uh, in order to uh, stop the writing. Uh, so he he uh, basically let his coup uh, topple Bhutto. Now, when you're toppling a civil government, uh, so typically they would arrest all the leadership of that civilian government. So Bhutto was actually initially he was put in house arrest. Um, there's a government um, rest house is what they call it uh, uh, over there. Um, I don't really know an equivalent term, kind of like a government-owned B&B. Uh, the, the, so they placed him uh, in house arrest there. Uh, he was not in prison or anything. He was living in a house. He was not allowed to leave the house. Uh, and uh, and then later on, Bhutto made some statements against Yalhak. Uh, because he was, Zawlat had announced uh, fresh elections uh, to be held in October. So he he did his coup on July of 1977, and he announced that October, we're going to have three months, we're going to have an election in Pakistan, and October we'll have a new government. Um, Bhutto was very confident that uh, rigging or no rigging, I am going to win the election. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to see to it that Zawlat gets his sheer punishment, uh, his fair punishment. So of course you don't do that. <laughs> yeah, not very intelligent to uh, threaten the guy, the guy who just overthrew you while you're sitting under house arrest. Not a smart move by Bhutto there. Yeah, and, and Bhutto was known to be um, uh, very vindictive. So Zala really feared for his life at that point, and um, there was a. Uh, police case registered against Bhutto for the murder of one of his uh, political opponent's fathers, actually. So this political opponent, uh, Kasuri, he and his father were traveling together in a car and uh, somebody sprayed bullets on the car. Uh, Kasuri survived, but his dad uh, died in that attack. And uh, they filed a police complaint. And in that complaint, they mentioned uh, uh, that this was ordered by uh, the Prime Minister, which is Zulfukari Bhutto at that time. Uh, so they opened up that old case and uh, pretty much arrested him uh, on those charges. And he was uh, put in prison. Um, he was tried. And two years later, he was hanged, uh, found guilty and hanged. Okay, And of course, there's um, lots of speculation that Ziaul Haq may have encouraged the um the guilty verdict is that uh is that correct also? Not that he actually did, but that he may have, that there are rumors or speculation that he might have. Yeah, that's the way it seems that it might have been uh, some behind the scenes uh, activities going on uh, where Jalak um, somehow influenced the outcome of that uh, case. I think it was decided with a, with a very close margin. Um, I think it was one judge, one vote. There was a panel of judges, as far as I remember, and uh, there was one judge who was uh, voted uh, against him. So it was just a one vote difference amongst, I think, five or six judges. I don't remember the details right now. Okay. And then, uh, I'm sorry, go on. It was pretty close. Okay. So Haq. um is in power now, and he, uh, despite his his uh, promise of elections, 
Um, he remained in power throughout most the rest of the seventies and a good chunk of the eighties as well. If I remember, if I remember correctly, is that correct? I don't think he, did he ever actually have those elections that he promised? Mm, well, um, he, he had elections in 1985, uh, kind of eight years too late, maybe. Okay. Um, seven, eight years too late. Um, yeah, but he did not have the promised elections. Okay. And so then, um, Ziaul Haq, he gets mixed up with, um, the cold war between the U S and the Soviet union becomes a middleman between the United States and, um, the Afghan Mujahideen. And he also, well, we've been into a lot of that in um, one of the previous episodes, uh, the three A's of Pakistan. And he begins to Islamize the country, begins to bring in um, what was he considers Sharia law or to a certain extent, there's lots of, well, lots of problems with that also, how he brought it in. And um, we won't get into all the details of that, but the, the next big uh, I guess conspiracy was his own death and the fact that he was on a, I believe a C-130 plane or a military plane that went down and crashed. And there's lots of uh, rumors and speculation about that also, um, particularly in, uh, I think it was in 1988 when he died, he was on a plane. Um, he wasn't supposed to be on the plane and there was no black box uh, pulled out from the plane when it crashed. And it was a, the eyewitnesses to the disaster where they discussed how the plane was uh, nosediving and pulled up and then nosedived again. There's a lot of strange things around that also regarding his death as well, if I understand correctly. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting thing because we we Pakistanis, we love conspiracy theories. So there's a lot of the way he... I think all Muslims love conspiracy theories. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So so the the way Ziaul Haq died did create a lot of conspiracy theories uh, in a country where uh, conspiracy theories are on second habit. Um, yeah, he was actually, uh, he had gone to inspect uh, the new, uh, Pakistan was planning to buy uh, M1 Abrams tank from the United States. Uh, and he was uh, in uh, Bahawalpur. There's a desert area in Pakistan, Bahawalpur, uh, where he was visiting to uh, look at a demonstration of the tanks. And he had with him uh, the uh, the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan and the U.S. military attaché to Pakistan, and uh, and a lot of his generals were there too. Um, now in Pakistan, the rule is that you cannot have more than two generals on a single plane. Uh, but the conspiracy theory, I guess, or I don't know, maybe it is the fact that Jalak was very paranoid about. Uh, uh, his own generals and about the CIA, and he made sure that uh, all the generals accompany him uh, on on the flight and on the flight back. And he made sure that the uh, U.S. ambassador and the U.S. military attaché also accompany him, and you know to make sure that uh, either the CIA or one of his own people don't try to uh, shoot down his plane or whatever. Now his. Uh, uh, his army chief at that time, uh, his, his second in command, uh, General uh, Mirza Aslam Beg, he had traveled there on his own plane. And uh, rumor has it that uh, as they were leaving, Ziaulak invited him to join um, on his C-130. 
But uh, Aslam Beg uh, told him that he had some other business to attend to, so he would go on his own plane. Uh, so Zalak went on his C-130 and Aslam Beg went on his own plane. And I believe it was the Aslam Beg's pilot who reported that the plane been chomped down, but I'm, my memory is uh, not that good at that point right now. But his plane went down uh, soon after uh, takeoff. Uh, and then uh, I believe Aslam Beg's plane actually that area and saw the wreckage and they called in emergency uh, forces. Um, basically, Zalak died along with a number of uh, senior military officials, the U.S. ambassador and the U.S. Uh, military attaché to Pakistan in that season 30 crash. We, the, the causes for that are uh, still not very clear. Uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories around it. Some say that there was a bomb on board which exploded. Some say uh, that uh, a, a poisonous gas was let loose on the plane. Uh, it put everybody to sleep. Some say that there was a hijacking attempt which went bad. But nobody really knows. And, of course, there's always the, um, the investigation done by... Uh, the um, I forgot the name of the company that builds the C one thirty planes. I think it's um I'm thinking Lockheed Martin, but I could be wrong. I'm not hundred percent sure. Yeah, I think it is Lockheed Martin. So they did their investigation. And, uh, so they had their own report. I think it was some technical fault in the plane. Uh, but this there's a lot of uh, conspiracy theories around that. Okay. Well, right now, Pakistan looks like it's in, is coming into a better place. Um, it has uh, removed itself a lot from the the war on terror days of the early two thousands, which caused so many uh, the loss of so many lives in Pakistan and in the um, and really has. I'm just going to be honest. When um, I talk to my colleagues, my coworkers, basically at work, and I talk about um, this research I'm doing on Pakistan, many of them. The you know the opinion of Pakistan is a negative opinion, and this is in, I'm in Atlanta, United States, and most Americans have a negative opinion about Pakistan. At least I'm just speaking anecdotally. I haven't done any um any real surveys or anything like that, but I don't think it's any secret. I think most people would understand that most Westerners and Americans in particular um, they see Pakistan as being medieval or being backwards, and they have lots of um, negative thoughts about Pakistan. What is um and I, of course, these things are colored by our media. Our media doesn't doesn't really portray the any of the good parts of Pakistan. But what is, in your opinion, as a Pakistan as a Pakistani living in the United States and someone's been here for many years, and you know both countries very well, what is uh what do you believe are some of the uh, misconceptions that Americans have about Pakistan, and how would you like uh, what can alternative uh, stories or alternative um, information can you give us about the misconceptions we might have about Pakistan? Yeah, actually, it's it's a lot of mistrust between the two countries. So you mentioned that uh, a lot of Americans uh, have negative opinion, and uh, the feeling is somewhat mutual. And if you go to talk to people in Pakistan, a lot of people. Uh, have a negative opinion, but over there it's more of a betrayal. Uh, so what happened was Pakistan has been a U.S. ally since pretty much uh, it's right after its independence. Uh, our uh, first prime minister, Liaquat Ali Khan, he actually visited the United States. Uh, at that time, he had invitations from both uh, Moscow and Washington. 
and he chose uh, Mos- sorry, Washington uh, over Moscow. So that pretty much placed Pakistan squarely in the U.S. camp. Uh, Pakistan in the early 50s uh, was also signatory to uh, some defense agreements. Uh, there was a one called CETO. There was another one called CENTO. Uh, Pakistan uh, allowed the U.S. to have bases in Pakistan. If you remember the famous U-2 incident, uh, where a U-2 plane was crashed or shot down over Russia. Right. Uh, U-2 plane actually took off from Pakistan. So there, there was a U-2 base in Pakistan mm-hmm. uh, in the 50s or 60s, I think it was in the 60s. So being very close allies, um, Pakistan also um, helped uh, cross, close the bridge between the U.S. and China. If you remember, uh, um, I'm forgetting the name of the foreign... Uh, Secretary uh, Secretary of State who came to Pakistan, um, and then he flew from Pakistan to China. So he was the world was told, oh yeah, he's visiting Pakistan, um, and then he slipped into China. Uh, so Pakistan facilitated that as well. And then the Afghan War when the Soviet Union invaded, um, this Pakistan uh, offered up help and. Uh, a lot of money and weapons were channeled through Pakistan into the hands of the Afghan Mujahideen who were fighting the Russians. And then, uh, and then right after that, uh, you know, uh, when, when the Russians left, the United States just left Afghanistan and uh, they turned against, uh, well, they, they turned it back to Pakistan as well and said, okay, no more money for you guys. Yeah, it's uh, game over. Right. And uh, and then there were a lot of sanctions placed on Pakistan because of its nuclear. Um, at that time, uh, it was a secret, so everybody said, "Oh, Pakistan is building a nuclear weapon." Pakistan claimed, "No, we're not building a nuclear weapon," but obviously they were building a nuclear weapon, uh, which they uh, tested in 1998. Uh, so there were a lot of sanctions uh, placed on Pakistan. India um, had actually demonstrated their nuclear capability back in 1974, I believe. And this is what prompted Pakistan to start its nuclear program. But uh, no sanctions were placed on India. Uh, And still, even today, India has uh, basically gone scot-free on that one. Um, And also during the 1965 and the 1971 war, even though Pakistan was in a military alliance with the United States, uh, the United States basically refused to help, saying that the uh, defense pacts were against uh, uh, communist aggression and uh, not done between a regional war. Uh, so that kind of created some bad blood. And then the whole Afghan episode uh, where uh, Pakistan uh, and, and the Afghanis also kind of felt that uh, we were uh, left in the lurch after the Soviet Union departed from Afghanistan. Everybody in uh, Washington was celebrating and they kind of forgot the guys who had brought that thing uh, about, uh, you know, defeating Afghanistan on a shoestring budget, uh, defeating the Soviet Union on a shoestring budget. Um, They they did um, achieve that. Now, uh, afterwards, uh, the two countries kind of uh, started drifting apart um, and uh, when Pakistan uh, had a, uh, military, uh, nuclear testing in 1998, 
a lot of sanctions were placed on Pakistan. Um, a lot of sanctions that had been placed earlier, um, and they were lifted because the uh, Pakistan help was required uh, for the war in Afghanistan. They were brought back in 1998 uh, and, and more so. So that did create a lot of economic problems for Pakistan. Um, but then, um, you know, Pakistan uh, also uh, helped uh, in what in their mind was trying to stabilize Afghanistan by bringing in the Taliban, which is probably not a good idea, uh, uh, retrospectively thinking. Um, but then, uh, you know, what happened in, on 9-11 uh, and... Uh, and then at that time, the United States basically uh, asked Pakistan for help again, but this time it was more of, uh, if you remember George Bush's turn, uh, it was uh, either you're with us or you're against us kind of uh, attitude. So Pakistan decided and complied and said, okay, you can have our land and, as, and uh, use it for uh, that campaign. But somehow that narrative was built that Pakistan was supporting uh, terrorism, even though at that time, you know, there were uh, several bases in Pakistan which were given over to the uh, U.S. forces, right. uh, and they were, they provided uh, passage and everything uh, for the attack on Afghanistan. And so they were, Pakistan was an ally uh, at that time, but uh, was uh, still seen as the supporting, uh, even today, uh, you know, um, recently when Imran Khan visited uh, Washington, I think uh, two weeks ago, uh, Trump, uh, in uh, during their um, meeting, he mentioned that, oh, in the past, uh, your governments have uh, shown a two-phase where they're supporting the Taliban and they're supporting us as well. Um, uh, so that narrative is there. Uh, I'm just going to leave it at that because I... What's the reality? Right, right. So uh, Pakistan has actually sacrificed um, quite a bit in fighting um, America's wars, whether it's the Soviet Union in the 1980s or it was the um, the Taliban in the 2000s. A lot of that has spilt over, and Pakistan has suffered a lot in loss of both blood and capital in trying to um, in dealing with the aftermath. Um, of these American wars. Um, I don't really remember much about the uh, Soviet-Afghan war. I was a little boy during most of this time, very young. But I remember a lot regarding the war on terror of the early 2000s and the war in Afghanistan. And uh, I remember hearing constantly on the news, you know, Pakistan's military was fighting against either the Taliban or different groups uh, allied to the Taliban or different militant groups. And there was... You know, thousands of people, thousands of Pakistanis lost their lives in trying to, um, in the in assisting with the war on terror and going in, in, in this battle. And a lot of people don't realize the sacrifice that Pakistan made as far as the loss, perhaps in purport, proportionally. Pakistan has probably lost more than the United States has. Um, if you take in proportion the, um, the number of people who are killed in Pakistan according to its population and the amount of money that it has spent in trying to secure the um, 
Northwestern Frontier Province. I can never say the actual name of it. I can, I can, never, I can never actually say the... It's not actually called Never Pachtunka. They made it difficult for you. Yeah, yeah I can't really pronounce it, but I, I can't ever say it. But you know the, that region, that, that, that mountainous, porous region that every all the news pundits talk about between Afghanistan and, um, and Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan has lost quite a bit um, as far as people... As far as both, once again, blood and capital in this um, in this battle, um, how is it going right now in that in this um, region? Is this kind of um, settled down now? We don't hear it as much in the news anymore. Is it okay now, or is it still a flashpoint? Uh, so um, first, you just talk about the, the loss. Um, now, when the Pakistan's prime minister recently visited, uh, uh, Trump mentioned something about losing. Uh, 2,000 American lives in Afghanistan and Imran said, well, don't forget the 70,000 Pakistani lives that were lost in the war on terror. So there's actually a number there. 70,000 people lost their lives. doesn't um, include the people who were left homeless, the people who lost um, a limb, injured seriously, and then the economic part. Pakistan currently has a $100 billion loan, which they're trying to repay. Um, and it's, uh, it's not easy because the people uh, are give uh, loans. They, it's, I think it's an international loan shark business, which Pakistan has got to... Yeah, they're always too uh, attached. Exactly. And then this, this whole uh, conflict has pretty much affected a lot of uh, the industry in Pakistan. So um, that's the negative part. Now, on uh, what's going on today, uh, most of the uh, militants have been quietened. Um, there was a big uh, uprising in the Swat Valley in NWFP. Well, now it's called Khabat Pakhtun, KPK. There was a big uprising there in the uh, mid-2000s and uh, 2007 or something like that, um, which was uh, put down by the military. Uh, and then the, they also operated in the mountainous region along the Afghan border. Um, so a lot of those uh, militants have been, uh, I hate to use the word, but neutralized, uh, I guess. Uh, so there is still... Some activities going on, but it's probably uh, 10% of what it used to be, not even 10% at that. Uh, On the economic front, Pakistan did lose a lot of um, money and uh, there was no industry. So this is where China comes into the picture. Now, China has been uh, an ally of Pakistan since the mid-60s. So this is an interesting uh, triangle where you have Pakistan, China, and U.S. So Pakistan is allies with China and Pakistan is allies with the U.S., uh, which is kind of a strange relationship. But now you might have heard of the China's Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. Uh, where they're spending billions of dollars around the world to create a trade network. Now, Pakistan is part of that uh, Belt and Road Initiative. In Pakistan, it's called uh, CPEC or China Pakistan. China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, so CPEC pronounced CPEC. And China is investing very heavily in Pakistan. Um, they're building a port city of Gawadar. They're building major highways to Pakistan, telecommunication networks to Pakistan. 
but of course, all of that is not going to come for free. Uh, it's all, uh, you know, long-term loans, I believe. Okay. So, uh, but uh, what Pakistan is getting in return is uh, the promises of uh, some uh, economic prosperity and, uh, you know, uh, hopefully China is going to try to support to, to protect its uh, interest in Pakistan in case of a conflict between India and Pakistan. So that's another hope that uh, with Chinese, strong Chinese presence in Pakistan, uh, India may not, uh, well, I wouldn't say attack, but it won't, it's not going to interfere on, on that level. If I understand correctly, I don't want to get too deep into the geopolitics of that region, but uh, China and India seem to be somewhat antagonistic, um, or they have some sort of dispute going on. I don't know how serious it is between those two, but have you heard anything about that without getting too much into the details of it all? Uh, yeah, there, uh, there, there are some uh, territorial disputes. Uh, interestingly, China claims uh, a part of Kashmir. Oh, okay. And also claims uh, another part of the northeastern provinces in India. Um, so, and they have actually gone to war one at least one time in 1962. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, okay. All right. So I can see the trying another triangle forming there. So with Imran Khan as the current prime minister, a lot of particularly especially young people tend to seem to like him. He seems to. Uh, bring a, a fresh hope or at least uh, I don't want to I don't want to use too many American parallels but I can see a lot of uh, the same enthusiasm about him as um, surrounded Barack Obama when he was first elected here in the United States uh, so how do you feel about the future of Pakistan whether it's regarding Imran Khan or not how do you feel about the next 10, 15, 20 years for Pakistan yeah that uh, next 10 years are going to be, uh, I believe, very crucial for Pakistan. And you're right, uh, Imran Khan. Uh, I would actually, drawing on uh, on U.S. parallel, I would uh, uh, you know, say that he's more like the Bernie Sanders of Pakistan. Uh, okay, had Bernie Sanders won. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, had Bernie Sanders won. Uh, but this guy struggled for 20 years. Uh, so uh, I don't know if Bernie Sanders has 20 years or not. Uh, but yeah, if Bernie Sanders had won, whatever the United States would have become, as I think is more because he's uh, very close to the millennials uh, mm-hmm. in Pakistan. Uh, so the youth in Pakistan do support him quite off, quite a lot, um, and uh, it's kind of a strange uh, uh, mix of support. So he's supported by a lot of liberals in Pakistan, mm-hmm. and surprisingly, a lot of the uh, religious right also support him. So it's kind of a weird uh, combination there. I kind of noticed an uh, interesting thing about Imran Khan, and I got to admit, I, um, I am hopeful for him as well, even though I don't really understand Pakistani politics, but I am kind of hopeful for him. But it is kind of strange that his um, his openness about his about his faith about islam and about his devotion to religion and also his personal life how he changed um uh i I can't i don't remember his whole story but i remember um he went from being basically a a playboy athlete into a fairly you know religious politically minded individual but those two worlds that he operates in both in the religiously devoted as well as the former hollywood 
or maybe Bollywood lifestyle. And, you know, those two things seem to attract two groups which seemingly would not necessarily be in the same camp. Yes, that's a, that's a very uh, interesting aspect of his politics. But he, he does have a lot of opposition in Pakistan. Um, you know, uh, the, the last prime minister, Nawaz Sharif, and his party, they have a very strong following in the uh, province of Punjab. Um, Bhutto's uh, grandson, uh, Bilawal Bhutto, uh, and his son-in-law, Asfali Zadari, Bilawal Bhutto's, uh, or Bilawal Zadari, as some people call him, his dad, Asif Zadari, who was the president of Pakistan uh, for about five years uh, before Namashi's power. Um, so they they uh, have a very strong support in the Sindh province. Um, so those are the two major um, oppositions to uh, Imran Khan's uh, political power. And he has a very tenuous majority in the parliament. And so he is not uh, free in that sense because he's going to get a lot of opposition from uh, his own parliament to form laws. So he's uh, pretty much going to be ruling by what the United States is called executive order. Uh, but interestingly, he does have very strong support from the military. And uh, one of the accusations against him is that the uh, the military helped him to power um through somehow uh, rigging the elections, uh, but this is currently unproven. Uh, but that's that's the general perception in his opposition camps. Uh, the, the the thing is, he's trying a lot of things at once, and uh, uh, I don't know if he can necessarily handle all of that uh, at the same time. Uh, given the fact that he does uh, have a very strong opposition uh, and, uh, and what he's doing to that opposition today is going to create uh, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, antagonism because uh, currently um, a lot of the opposition leaders are in jail, uh, primarily on corruption charges, but uh, that's in in, in uh, Pakistan, uh, a politician going to jail is always considered uh, political capital for the politician. Uh, so their his opposition is portraying that as a, um, as a political tactic rather than a, uh, a civil case of uh, corruption. So that's something that's going to um, hurt him unless he can uh, move forward uh, and and you know, get some support from within the opposition ranks on his policies. Okay. We, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, you could yeah. finish that thought. Go on, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead, please. Okay, well, we, we began speaking about Kashmir. We're going to end by speaking about Kashmir also. Recently, there's been a change in India's declaration of Kashmir's status. Uh, I don't fully understand it, and I'm hoping you can probably explain a little bit better for um, our audience members who aren't as um, clued into the situation in Kashmir. What is a, the, this happened very recently, I think just uh, yesterday, the day before yesterday, very recently that India changed Kashmir's status. I don't know if you can elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, yeah, so the interesting thing is um, 
there's a article uh, article 370 of the indian constitution which gives uh, kashmir special status now the question is why does kashmir have a special status because internationally kashmir is considered a disputed territory right and there's united nation resolutions on kashmir dating back to 1948 which basically say well this is a territory disputed between india and pakistan and the will of the people of kashmir uh, should be exercised through a referendum uh, giving the people of kashmir the right to choose between india or pakistan so um because of the the disputed status uh, of the kashmir territory uh indian constitution actually built in uh, this special uh, status for kashmir um now from what i understand and i haven't really read that uh, uh, that constitution as that that special um, 370 article 370 myself but i've read some commentary so i'm speaking from a little bit of an ignorance on that one but from what i understand uh it it um ensures that no uh non kashmiri can settle in kashmir meaning they cannot buy land they cannot vote in the elections as if a, if a non kashmiri comes and tells in kashmir whereas in india even pakistan even in united states right if i move today from austin to atlanta i would automatically automatically become a voter in georgia right um and be considered a georgia resident and i will be given a georgia driver license right, right? you pretty much have to <laughs> you kind of you have to get a license with that yeah you were forced to get a georgia license yeah. um but not so uh for the case of kashmir Uh, so if if a non kashmiri moves into kashmir he uh, cannot become a resident of kashmir which means uh, he cannot um what believe he cannot even buy land over there uh, but pretty much he's not going to be considered a kashmiri resident he would still be considered uh, the resident of whichever state he came from and that was to protect the the uh, demographics of kashmir because the united nations said well that's that the people of kashmir decide well if he tell you that uh, demographic by bringing in people from the other states then the whole uh, premise of the 1948 resolution is going to be incorrect uh, what modi's government has done is they've taken away that special status uh, without giving kashmir the right of the the full state so this more like kashmir the territory i think i'm not really sure what they've turned it into but pretty much they have taken away all those uh, safeguards that were provided by the article 370 of the constitution okay. and then they have broken up kashmir into two separate sections one is called ladakh uh, and the other one is called kashmir ladakh has become an autonomous uh, uh, area under direct uh, central government rule and kashmir is uh, also kind of like a Uh, area within uh, controlled by the central government um so the thinking um, well, again is more of a uh, conspiracy theory thinking i would say at this point we have to see how things pan out but what most people are saying is that the plan uh by the modi government not but taking a step back the modi government uh and they they actually declare that we are hindu nationalist uh so that's kind of like uh the indian version and 
I'm a Pakistani, so I am going to be biased. Uh, so sorry for. It's, it's okay. <laughs> so, uh, uh, to to us being a Pakistani and a Muslim, um, as that to me is more of like a Nazi party in the 30s. Uh, you remember Hitler did not come through a coup; he was elected to power. Right. And he also uh, did a lot of steps in the early days where he changed the status of the rainland, which is a demilitarized zone. But Kashmir is highly demilitarized, but it was a special uh, uh, constitutional protection that was given to rainland, which he ended and he moved troops into rainland. Uh, I see some parallels between that and what Moody has done. Uh, Moody is also a Hindu nationalist. Uh, they are openly against occupying Kashmir, uh, oh, sorry, in favor of occupying Kashmir. Um, and what people are saying is, now with the special status gone, uh, they're going to try to push the Muslims of Kashmir into Pakistan through persecution and uh, other actions. And they're going to try to settle in uh, Hindus from the other areas of India into Kashmir. Now, because now they would be, the, with this uh, article now, they would be able to take up residence in Kashmir. They would be able to buy lands in Kashmir. They would be able to vote in the elections. Uh, so within 10, 15, 20 years, I don't know how long, uh, the demographics are going to change significantly to where even if the United States uh, somehow forces India to have a referendum in Kashmir, it's going to go in favor of India. At this point, uh, we don't know uh, if we have hold a referendum of uh, on uh, on the issue of Kashmir in Kashmir. Uh, the original referendum was supposed to be whether you want to choose between Pakistan and India. Uh, there's a lot of Kashmiris who say there should be a third option to become independent. Uh, from what I've heard, yeah, from what I've heard, a lot of people actually say that uh, that option is a very strong option. And if that is thrown into the ballot, uh, you never know where the, uh, the elections are going to go. Kashmir being a very strong uh, Muslim population even today, uh, I think it's like 60-some percent, there is a very strong possibility of, uh, if you have a, a referendum with just India and Pakistan, there is a strong possibility that people will vote in favor of Pakistan. If you throw an independence, uh, then it could lead to that as well. But with this, if if you change the demographics um, to where you have a Hindu majority, all you have to do is go from 60% to 45% Muslim population, and all of a sudden uh, you hold a referendum and uh, it will going to be a pro-India referendum, right? So this is how, how people in Pakistan are perceiving it. Um, Currently, Kashmir is shut down. They have shut down all communication. No cell phone, no internet, mm. and no communication. Mm. All the tourists have been asked to leave. The entire leadership of Kashmiri uh, people is in prison right now. They were initially pushed on house arrest, and within 48 hours, they were moved to jails. And uh, the uh, Kashmiri uh, chief minister, Mahbuba Mufti, who was actually a very pro-Indian uh, chief minister, and her family was, uh, you know, known to be pro-Indian. Uh, she recently issued a statement uh, which kind of sounded like, well, I think 
we decided uh, our decision to support India was wrong. We should have supported Pakistan back in 1947. Mm-hmm. Okay. This, um, from what I can understand, what you're, from what you're saying is that there is a potential if this continues to, if we want to take one one potential road of um, of thinking, that Kashmir may become, even though it's much different in, in geography and ethnic makeup and a lot of differences here, that it could become a lot like how parts of Israel are contested between Israel, uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians, where you have settlements of Israeli settlements that give the the central government of Israel a foothold in traditional um, areas that were meant for Palestinians. If they, if India allows um, Indian mi- migrants to come into Kashmir and settle down, they can basically establish permanent settlements or permanent communities there that will ultimately alter the demographics uh, where maybe 60% Muslim now, maybe in 10 years, 10, 15, 20 years, it might be 60% or maybe just 50% Muslim um, at that time. Is that one line of thinking? Actually, that's uh, exactly what allows the Kashmiri and uh, and Indian uh, opposition leaders to, not just the Kashmiri leaders, but also uh, leaders of the Congress Party, which is the major opposition party in India today, they're they're basically claiming that uh, with this action, Modi has turned Kashmir into Palestine, and he's doing exactly what Israel is doing in, in Palestine. So yeah, it's um, basically what the uh, what a lot of people in India itself are saying, um, and. Uh, uh, and that's the that's a real fear uh, that it could turn into uh, like a West Bank where there's a lot of uh, Indian settlements alongside the Kashmiris living right. there. All right, and that of course could also lead to more violence just between the two communities, even without any con- any interference between the governments. Just those two communities could start clashing. Um, I don't know if that's happening already in Kashmir, um, as it is without the. Um, Without any interference from either Indian or Pakistani governments, do you know if there's any um, internal conflicts or clashes between Muslims and Hindus living in Kashmir? I don't want to go down another road, but I'm just just another question that came to mind. I just wanted to ask that real quick. I'm not sure. I believe there is, um, but it's hard to separate the Kashmiri, um, what Pakistan would call liberation fighter and what the Indian government calls terrorists. Okay, so it's hard yeah. to figure out if those attacks are being carried out for uh, or against the Indian occupation as they see it, or are they actually Hindu-Muslim rights? Because uh, in the rest of India, it's easy, right? There is no independence movement. So whenever you have a, a clash between Hindus and Muslims, it's uh, easy to see that it's a Hindu-Muslim uh, conflict. But in Kashmir, because right. the occupying forces are mostly Hindu, and uh, the people who are fighting those forces in Kashmir, attacking them, are, of course, Muslim Kashmiris, primarily. So it's hard to see uh, if it's a Hindu-Muslim conflict or it's uh, just uh, people fighting their occupiers. Okay. All right. Uh, it, it appears as if um, that's going to remain a, a flashpoint for many years to come. Inshallah, we hope that... Um Peace will come to that region, to Kashmir, at some point. But we're going to have... Before we go forward, one more point out. Um, And a lot of Indian opposition parties uh, are currently claiming that this Article 370 
um, once once uh, it's removed, uh, the instrument of accession to which Kashmir, um, according to Indian, uh, uh, according to Indian point of view, uh, the instrument of accession which uh, made Kashmir a part of India is now null and void, which means the Article 370 was protecting the instrument of accession to India. With that gone, the instrument accession is null and void, which means now India is, according to their own constitution, an occupying force in Kashmir. Wow. Okay, that's some. That's something right there. Hopefully, we um we'll see how it plays out. Um, I never intended to do a um, because uh, I consider the uh, discussing Kashmir kind of uh, discussing Pakistan, but. Kashmir may deserve a more in-depth conversation in the future. Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up now, uh, Brother Sarosh, but this has been fun, and I'm hoping that uh, we can do this more in the future. Uh, you have helped me on some uh, on some future episodes regarding, we've just finished speaking about Israel and Palestine. I'm inviting you right now on the air in front of everybody. Uh, will you be willing to come back and uh, discuss other topics outside of Pakistan, maybe uh Israel, Palestine, and other issues. So, will you be willing to come on and discuss those things? Sure, inshallah. Inshallah. Yeah. Okay. All right. We will. Uh, we'll work that out um, behind the scenes. So, uh, once again, brother Swords, I want to thank you for taking your time and your um, your ex- your expertise. I know that you don't. Um, you're not a historian. You're not a history expert. As you're a fan of history, like I am. So. We've uh, been on this. We've been on this conversation for about an hour and a half. And we really could go another hour and a half if we weren't careful. So I, I got to bring it to an end real quick. But I'm hoping, inshallah, we can uh, do more episodes like this in the future, and we'll talk about other things outside of Pakistan. But I want to thank you for for um, being a guest on the show, and hopefully, we can uh, discuss more things in the future. Thank you. All right, you're thank welcome. You. You're most welcome, brother Swell. So. Uh, Brothers and sisters, it's going to wrap it up for today's, uh, for this uh, session of the Islamic History Podcast. Inshallah, we'll be, we'll be back again next time with more information and more wonderful stories. But until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can get the show notes for this and all the other episodes in this series by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash Pakistan. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive shows by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the rebellion of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. If you stay tuned, you'll hear a short clip from one of these exclusive episodes in a few minutes. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back to 
Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And we are covering the caliphate slash rebellion of Ibn Zubair. All depends on your perspective. And we are also discussing the rebellion within the rebellion, that is, Muhtar's rebellion, which took place within the caliphate, the brief caliphate of Ibn Zubair. We are on part four of Muhtar's Rebellion, but on episode 14 of the overall series on Ibn Zubair. So a brief recap of where we are so far. Muhtar Ibn Ubaid has led a successful overthrow of Ibn Zubair's government in Kufa. Many of the Shiites and the Mawali of Kufa have joined him. Muhtar has attracted them by promising to avenge Hussein's death, which took place on the fields of Karbala and is known as the Massacre at Karbala. Muhtar has already made good on this promise. He has killed several people in Kufa who were responsible for that event. Muhtar also claims to be uh, representing Ibn al-Hanafiyyah, who is Ali ibn Abi Talib's oldest living son, and also the half-brother of Hussein ibn Ali. And just to remind you that the Mawali, plural for Maula, they were drawn to Muhtar because of his promises, or more or less for their hopes and his implied promises of gaining equal status with the Arab nobility of Kufa. And Muhtar ibn Ubaid, finally, he owes much of his success to a man named Ibrahim al-Ashtar, who is the chief of the Madhij clan and who is also Muhtar's right-hand man. In the last episode, we mentioned how the Ashraf, the Arab nobility of Kufa, they staged a counter-revolution against Muhtar. Muhtar had sent Ibrahim al-Ashtar to retake Mosul from the Umayyads who had recently arrived from Syria. But when the Ashraf rose up against Muhtar, he recalled Ibrahim al-Ashtar back to Kufa. And with Ibrahim al-Ashtar's help, Muhtar was able to squash the rebellion. And so we are going to start where we starting where we are starting off right now. Muhtar has reasserted himself in Kufa, and we are now going to turn to events in Basra. Word of Muhtar's successful rebellion in Kufa has reached the Shiites in Basra, and many of the people, many of the Shiites in, in Basra are actually uh, penitents, those Tawabun who managed to survive the Battle of Ain al They had returned to Basra. Before coming to Basra, they had met with Muqtar while he was still in prison in Kufa, and he told them to go on to Basra and begin recruiting for him in Basra while he handled things in Kufa. And so, while Muhtar was very successful in Kufa, his following in Basra at this time is still fairly small. Now, despite their small size, once Muhtar's Shiites in Basra heard about Muhtar's success in Kufa, they decided to rebel on his behalf also. And so Muhtar's Shiites in Basra, they went and occupied a building known as Darul Risk. 
Darul Rizq literally means the house of sustenance. And this was basically the storehouse for Basra. This is where they kept surplus food. And even though it was called the house of sustenance, it was more like a fortress than a, than a single house. It was built like a fortress with iron, with iron gates and the whole nine yards. So they go ahead and occupy Darul Rizq. And eventually, of course, Ibn Zubair's governor of Basra, a man named Al-Quba, he hears about it. And so he sends soldiers to fight them and drive them out of Darul Rizq. However, this has the potential to destabilize Basra. Uh, You've heard these things in the past episodes, but I'll reiterate them to remind you. Basra has already seen a lot of tribal conflict in just a few years. We mentioned how two tribes, the Bani Azd and the Bani Bakr, they had forged an uneasy alliance against their common rival, Banu Tamim. 